Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, March 29th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a deep dive into postpartum Medicaid and the story behind a shipwreck newly discovered off the Mississippi coast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Today is National Vietnam Veterans Day in the U.S. At 11 o'clock this morning, members of the State Veterans Affairs Board will meet on the steps of the Capitol Rotunda to honor those who fought and died in the Vietnam War. Stacy Pickering is executive director of the VA in Mississippi. He speaks with MPB's Rob Lane. Over 227,000 Mississippians served in Vietnam. Of that, almost 668 Mississippians paid the ultimate sacrifice and died in the jungles of Southeast Asia. Uh, of those that went missing, 20 Mississippians were prisoners of war, or MIA, and 12 of those are still missing. That means 12 Mississippi families every Christmas, every birthday, every Easter are always missing their loved one who is still missing in Vietnam. Unlike veterans of some previous wars, Vietnam vets were not universally welcomed back home with sort of heroes' welcomes. Speaking to vets, um, you know, now decades removed from the end of the war, what does it mean to them now, decades later, to receive real recognition for uh, going you know, overseas? The Vietnam to risk War their life? was one of the first modern, real modern wars where you weren't bringing back a large number of veterans at a time. It was a controversial war, and it was a difficult time during our nation's history with the civil rights movement, a lot of civil unrest. And when they would come home, they weren't welcomed home. The war was not always popular in every round. Now our nation's come to realize we owe these veterans our, a debt of gratitude. And as one of our veterans at the Jackson Veterans Home uh, is fond to tell me, he says, it does my heart good when people tell me thank you and welcome home. That, not just for me. It's about my colleagues that have already passed away that we are remembered and we are appreciated. You know, 500 Vietnam veterans die every day in the United States. It's our largest population of veterans, and that makes up the largest population of our state nursing homes for veterans that we run uh, in Oxford, Kosciuszko, Jackson, and Collins. 
you lead Mississippi's VA, and when you talk about Vietnam vets not necessarily receiving the same welcome as veterans of previous wars did, some folks would say that that criticism extends to the VA, that the VA did not step up and deliver the kind of services, and more broadly, the U.S. government did not step up to deliver Vietnam vets the sorts of resources that perhaps they needed to, 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 to rejoin society and start their lives as young adults after coming back from war. Is that a critique you would agree with? And uh, if so, what has the VA been able to do in the decades since to set about making that right? You know, coming out of Vietnam, there's a lot of things our society really missed the mark on and how we cared for those veterans. And the good thing is we learned from that. It was one of those painful learning experiences where our federal government started funding the VA at a higher level, renovating old World War II-era facilities and services. Now we have clinics that are in the community, so they're not having to drive two and three hours to get to a hospital. We have better understanding of the emotional toil of war, whether it's PTSD or moral injury. And because of the sacrifices of our Vietnam veterans in combat, and in the years following, our nation learned from that, and we're better able to care for them and our modern veterans from Iraq, Afghanistan, the global war on terror, now as we continue to move forward in this new century. When we talk about PTSD, obviously this is a disease that, you know, we're sort of over the course of the 20th century in particular, our understanding of it ticked up significantly. Was, to some extent, the Vietnam War kind of an important turning point in sort of the American healthcare system's understanding of an ability to treat PTSD? You know, I think it was a turning point, but maybe not just within the VA, but as our society as a whole. We've come to understand the emotional toil of life, but even for those that have seen combat and, and have dealt with, it's not something we you know push under the rug anymore. You know, counseling, we're very open about the need. We've got senior leaders in the military now that are talking about going to see their therapist to walk through their relationship issues and their problems, setting a role model, now even active duty as well as within the VA, and we understand the emotional issues that we all deal with so much better than we did even 20 years ago. Uh, that's one reason suicide prevention is a big push within the military community, whether active duty, guard, reserve, or the veterans community, to make sure we're addressing those issues. We know to ask the questions now, and we're not afraid to do that. That's what we call it the buddy check in the veterans community, because we want to make sure our friends aren't sitting at home uh, dealing with depression, dealing with anxiety, that we want to make sure we're encouraging everybody to make that buddy check, to follow up on the veterans that you know, that you go to church with, that you live with, just so they know that they're appreciated and not forgotten. Vietnam also saw heavy use of Agent Orange and other chemicals that also caused significant sort of chronic injuries and illnesses for a lot of vets. Are illnesses related to those chemicals still an issue that some living vets in the state are dealing with? Absolutely. We have Vietnam veterans dealing with the Agent Orange uh, aftermath today. Uh, our federal government just a couple of years ago expanded Agent Orange coverage where if you got certain cancers or certain diseases, it's presumptive. It's assumed that they caused that. So therefore, we give you the treatments and the benefits at no cost to those veterans. The VA covers it now, especially for our Navy personnel. You know, air particles don't stop at the shore just because the land ends and water begins. It flows on out to sea. And they call it the Blue Water Agent Orange, the Blue Water Navy Act. And for those men and women who were serving on ships just offshore uh, with, from Vietnam that may have been exposed, are, we're now covering those. And so it's always involving. And that's the reason I encourage every veteran, whether it's Vietnam or other conflict or even from the Cold War period, every five to ten years they ought to get their benefits checked up and, and followed up because there may be coverage that they're in health care they're entitled to because things are always evolving. We're learning. And, again, coming out of Vietnam – 
our VA and our federal government, our state governments came to realize we have to adapt, we have to learn, and we have to do better. If you could sort of take a moment to address still living Vietnam veterans, are you confident in saying that on the whole, when you take all the decades after Vietnam sort of as one whole piece, has the U.S. government done enough to support our Vietnam vets? You know, I think we have over time, again, we had to learn from a very difficult period where we did not do enough to today where we are stepping up and making sure we're caring for our Vietnam veterans just the same level we have every other conflict, uh, making sure they know their service to our nation, their answer to the call is appreciated. And as many times when I get to pin on a Vietnam veteran's pin on the lapel or the collar of one of our veterans, thank you for your service and welcome home. And just a final question, perhaps for people listening who might be families of deceased Vietnam vets who aren't able to make it to the ceremony in Jackson, what would your message be to them? on this very important day? The message is very simple. Thank you for your service. We appreciate what the sacrifices that family members made during that conflict and in the years after. And for those individuals who served in country or maybe in the Blue Water Navy or in support of Vietnam operations, we owe you a great debt of gratitude. And we're thankful for the heritage and legacy that they've given us, and they should be welcomed home. Yes, amen to that. Stacy Pickering is executive director of Veterans Affairs in Mississippi. Coming up, the story behind a shipwreck newly discovered off the Mississippi coast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. During the pandemic, no one could be kicked off Medicaid, including women who had just given birth. But that emergency declaration could end soon, and some new mothers could suddenly lose their health care. Shalina Chatlani of the Gulf States Newsroom looks at what's at stake in Mississippi and Alabama. Two years ago, Mississippi resident Whitney Batiste was pregnant with her third child. She tried to get private health care insurance, but says she was denied. $33,000 to have a kid? No. I ain't got that stash in the bank. So like many mothers, she got on Medicaid, state and federally funded public health insurance. Batiste knew her pregnancy wouldn't be easy. With her first two kids, she got intense, week-long migraines. But this time was worse. Her blood pressure would keep spiking. So I got induced at 39 weeks. And we had the baby. I stopped taking the medication because no one told me to continue. I'm thinking everything is fine. It wasn't. Months after she had given birth, Batiste's blood pressure was near stroke level. And it turns out that I had postpartum preeclampsia. Preeclampsia, dangerously high blood pressure, is one of the leading causes of maternal death. Even though her life was at risk, she struggled to get care. I also realized that that same day was the day my Medicaid ended. Women in Mississippi and Alabama are eligible to get Medicaid when they get pregnant. But for most, their coverage runs out two months after they give birth. Unlike 39 others, these states opted not to expand Medicaid to more people. And that disproportionately impacts Black women, like Batiste, 
who are more than three times more likely to die than white women in Mississippi. And overall across the Gulf South, maternal mortality is significantly higher than the national average. Legislators in Mississippi and Alabama could help by extending Medicaid coverage for pregnant women to a full year after birth. And while the states are similar politically, they're taking different approaches. Let's start at the Mississippi State Capitol. We've been very clear we're just not for Medicaid expansion, and this is uh, arguably Medicaid expansion, certainly expanding coverage. That's Mississippi Speaker of the House Philip Gunn. He's a Republican who blocked the plan to extend Medicaid before it could even come up for discussion. But the legislation had overwhelming bipartisan support in the state. And Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman says opposing it contradicts the state's pro-life agenda. He's also a Republican. We have the most postpartum births with problems. Uh, we have the most deaths. So we're trying to be consistent in arguing for the right to life on one side and taking care of the baby once they get here. There's an effort to bring it up again. Meanwhile, next door... Well, Medicaid expansion isn't a bad word here in Alabama. That's Cover Alabama Coalition Director Jane Adams. There's already momentum for a full-year extension in other southern states, like Georgia, and Tennessee already did it in 2021. So Adams believes Alabama lawmakers will get this done. We believe the facts will win out and that the support is there. Alabama has one of the highest rates of maternal mortality in the nation. Adams said lawmakers are taking that very seriously, especially because of the history of racism in medicine. James Marion Sims, an Alabama doctor, is known as the father of modern gynecology. He experimented on enslaved women's bodies and developed techniques that are still used today. Horrific things. So that legacy is present. It continues to present itself in racial disparities in birth outcomes. Cassandra Welchlin is head of the nonprofit Mississippi Black Women's Roundtable. Of course, if, you, if there was more white women and white babies dying, there would be more of an effort, but we don't see that. In Mississippi, two-thirds of women give birth on Medicaid, and the majority are Black. Welchland says advocates will continue to fight to extend postpartum Medicaid coverage. I've lived the struggle, and I know what those safety nets do to help save lives. In the meantime, moms like Whitney Batiste aren't waiting around to see more mothers die. She started a nonprofit to support women during and after their births. It's called Pickles and Popsicles, named after her favorite pregnancy cravings. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chutlani. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration among public media stations in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. Still ahead, the story behind a shipwreck newly discovered off the Mississippi coast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Researchers have discovered the shipwreck of a 200-year-old whaling vessel off the Mississippi coast. Last month, scientists aboard a National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA ship, used a remote control 
underwater vehicle to produce images of the wreck. Two anchors, along with a few other small pieces of the ship, were found more or less intact. Jeremy Wyrick is the organization's director of ocean exploration. This is a, a ship that was lost in a storm. And through the research of Dr. Jim Delgado and his team, they were able to piece together the clues to figure out that this ship, the shipwreck, uh, which is called the industry, um, originated up in New England, up in Massachusetts, and was conducting some whaling activities down in the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, these storms kicked up, knocked down their masts, and the ship went down. Uh, what was interesting with the ship, though, through his research, was that uh, because there was um, barrels of uh, rendered whale oil on there, that added buoyancy to a ship that was really supposed to sink instantly when it floated around for a while and get caught in the Gulf Loop, and that's why it ended up sinking where it did, um, probably about 70 miles away from when it was originally thought to have sunk. So uh, here was this unknown shipwreck um, com- completely you know, in, a, in a place that was really just 6,000 feet on, you know, at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico, all laying down there all by itself. What's interesting about this is that African Americans and Native Americans were on the ship. Yeah, it was. it's a unique ship in terms of the time because there were freed slaves, freed black Americans, Native Americans. There's a multiracial crew that was on here um, that were conducting you know, economic commerce back in the day. And what's interesting about a shipwreck like this is they tell stories. Every ship is different. And so discovering this ship was able to add a piece to the puzzle of the whaling community of the New England, of which there's a long tradition, a long history and heritage that goes back. So those researchers were able to put a piece together, and it, it added that context in terms of the sailors that were on there. But what's also interesting is that for a lot of the people had no idea that um, you know the whaling was happening in the Gulf or that um, there was this multiracial crew that was on board um, that were living, you know, having a good wage as hard of work as it was working on a whaling ship and how dangerous it was. That was a way for them to earn a living. And so these this mixed race of folks were very adept, even though a storm hit them, they were very adept at what they did in terms of operating these ships. Yeah, absolutely. It was very hard work to be out there. Um, this boat is you know, only 64 feet long, a huge kettle on there, a triworks, which was used for rendering the oil. Um, so you had to manage that, you had to manage the fire, you had to manage the, the rigging. And of course, these storms would kick up. And, um, and you're really relying on one another to survive out there. It just so happened that the crew did survive. They were actually picked up by another whaling vessel. And um, coincidentally, it was another whaling vessel from that same area where the ship was from. And they were able to get back home safely. But they didn't want to go to shore. Why not? They didn't because um, you know, these were, these were free, free Americans. And the culture and the work from... Massachusetts up in New England was, you know, that community is completely different than the southern communities. And there were laws at the time, this is, um, you know, interbellum America, and there were laws that if they didn't reach shore, that they could go to jail. And if they did go to jail um, and they couldn't pay their time in there, then they would become enslaved. Um, and this was, so it was a very dangerous time for uh, black Americans, Native Americans who were, who were sailing off the coast of the Gulf at the time.
So even though this was hard work and you really had to be proficient at it, there was still the aspect of being free. But if you came on U.S. soil in the South, there might be a possibility that you could be re-enslaved. Yeah, and it, just because of the demographic that was happening there and how America was at the time, it was really, it was, like I said, it was here they were working off the coast in very dangerous conditions, and given the environment they were in, they were going to be in very dangerous conditions if they reached shore. Were their homes in Massachusetts? Yes, their homes were Massachusetts. You know, the coastal community there in Massachusetts, you know, around New Bedford and in that area, that whole area is, like I said, a rich tradition of, of, uh, of a whaling history. In those communities, um, you know, these sailors continued to sail for many years afterwards. And one of the officers, black American officer that was on there, um, went on to, his name was Pardon Cook, and he went on to sail um, many different voyages. And he's credited with having the most voyages for a black American. From everything that has happened with finding, you discovering this vessel last month because you found it in February, what do you hope to glean from this? What's really remarkable about stories like this is that we took something which was basically, like I said, a survey opportunity of a research vessel investigating a target in the middle of the, middle of the Gulf, which wouldn't get investigated had we not had a chance to just say, hey, what's, what's out here? We have to test some gear. And so for really what was able to take a few hours, we were able to fully investigate a ship using testing our gear and broadcast those images all the way over to the specialists like Dr. Delgado and other viewers that anybody could tune in at that time and take part in this discovery. In the telepresence system that we have, the telepresence is being able to broadcast these images from the bottom of the ocean up to our control van, our control center, and then beam those via satellite, and they go out on the Internet. So um, had people been tuning in at that time back in February when we first made this discovery, they could see that live. And it just so happened we had worked with Jim, uh, Dr. Delgado, and his team to connect with them in the bone community for them to be able to um, take part live. They weren't on board the ship, but because the communications that they had to be able to speak with the ROV pilot, Jim was actually literally in the ROV pilot's ear telling him where to go around the shipwreck, um, what to zoom in on, zoom out of, um, how to take the photo mosaic to piece in all those, those pieces that, that actually made that map of that large image of the shipwreck. Um, to have that ability and to be able to not only connect with scientists that way, but to connect with the public that way, I think was a really good example of how we can really do remote science and how technology has been able to advance to a point where we're able to tell this story about this one particular shipwreck and what that means to the different communities. I think it's a really great example of where ocean exploration can go in the future. Jeremy Weirich is the Director of Ocean Exploration at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Money Talks. Then at 10, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11, Don't Miss Southern Remedy. I'm Desiree Frazier. We'll see you tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition only on MPB Think Radio.